I think as Pastor Milton said, there are some discussion questions up here if you're leading a discussion uh, this afternoon or later in the week uh, for a care group. But you know, let's go ahead and, and pray and then we'll jump into this morning's message. Lord, we thank you so much for this wonderful time that we've been able to sing to you as part of our worship. We thank you for the wonderful words that we were able to sing to you and to one another. <clears throat> we pray that you'd continue to be glorified and lifted up through the preaching of your word. We pray that you'd fill me and us with your spirit so that we could hear and discern what you have for us and so that we could grow. Thereby, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, last week, uh, Pastor Milton uh, ended our, our series on prayer with uh, ingredients of an epic prayer. And uh, that uh, sermon ended, as Joe uh, was talking about during the, the music time, uh, with a discussion of worship or the music part of worship. And you have all of these singers that are coming together to sing and God is using their praises or responding to their praises and setting ambushes against the enemies of Israel. So ingredients of an epic prayer. Uh, this morning, um, the title of my message is A Singing Lesson from Paul. And you could view this as a continuation of the series on prayer because singing is partially a prayer. It's us putting prayers to song. That's part of what is going on. And so maybe I should have titled this the ingredients of epic singing. Maybe we can get this epic word just really rolling and on a roll, both in the college career and in the pulpit. Um, but uh, what we want to focus on is, is, is we're going to be looking at Colossians 3. And you can open up there. Colossians 3, chapter, verse 16 is the main passage that we'll be dealing with. And Paul is the author of Colossians, and as we know, it's the Holy Spirit that's actually writing through a particular author. But we're viewing this as singing lessons from Paul, and so I want to go back before we look at Colossians and just think about an incident that happened to Paul and Silas back in Philippi, in chapter 16 of Acts. You guys may remember that they were preaching the gospel, and there was this demon-possessed girl that was running around behind them and, and kind of harassing them, and she was a fortune teller. And then finally, Paul turns around and casts this demon out of her. And then so the people who own this fortune telling girl or the slave can't make any money from her anymore. And so they get all mad and they get the authorities together. They arrest Paul and Silas, beat them up, throw them into prison. And what do Paul, how do Paul and Silas respond at midnight? They're praying and singing. Right. And all the prisoners can hear them. So they're public with their prayers. They're public with their singing. They're not keeping it to themselves. And then the Lord obviously uses that, that singing and causes an earthquake to come. And you get this jailer that receives Christ and some amazing things happen. And so here the Apostle Paul was accustomed to singing. He was accustomed to lifting up his voice in praise to God and and you just wonder, what would it have been like to be in the prison cell next to Paul? You're listening to this man. <clears throat> we don't have any information. Did he have a good voice? Did he have a bad voice? Was he totally out of tune? Um, what were the contents of what, what was he singing about? What kind of hymns or praises was he and, and Silas, were he and Silas singing? Uh, all we know is that they were praying and singing and God responded uh, to them. 
as we come to the book of Colossians uh, in chapter three, Paul is is going to exhort the Colossians to make singing a big part of what they do and what they are all about. You know, the book of Colossians is all about the exaltation of Christ, right? Here, the the people that Paul is writing to, these people had been confused about the person and nature of Christ. And in chapter 1 and 2, Paul leaves no stone unturned and, and really settles once and for all that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He's the creator. He upholds thing, all things by the word of his power. Um, he is exalted. He is high. He is worthy to be worshipped. He is the one through whom grace comes. He is far and above all of the angels. And then when you get to chapter 3, Paul starts to turn his attention to imperatives now. He's starting to give them instruction and commands. He says, in light of who Christ is, in light of who you are in Christ, now set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are seated at the right hand of Christ in the heavenlies. And therefore, because of your position in Christ, due to his resurrection and your resurrection with him, you can now put off these deeds that you're still giving into. You're still giving into these old patterns that God's going to judge the sons of disobedience for. Patterns of lust and hatred and bitterness. God's going to judge the sons of disobedience. But you've been chosen, you've been elected, and you're seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ, in Christ. So therefore, you have the power to put these things away. You can put on the old man, or the new man, and put off the old. So he says, set your mind on Christ, set your mind on things above, and let the peace of God dwell in you. And then we come to verse 16, and let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Get the word of Christ in you. In a rich way, be enriched by the word of Christ. And as he develops this passage, as we as we read the rest of the phrases, it's through singing that this is to happen in this context. Let's read the passage together. Colossians 3.16, Paul says, the word of let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So in this one passage, we could shape it like this. Paul is giving the Colossians a singing lesson. He's not going to tell them how to push with their diaphragm or to keep their throat open or not to sing through their nose like I do. What he's going to do is talk to them about the spiritual aspects of singing, right? And so I want to shape it this way. There's all kinds of ways we could shape this verse and actually grammatically this is a pretty challenging little verse uh, and that's why if you look at various translations people have different phrases in different places and they're all trying to figure out which what is modifying what um, but the kernel is here and so I want to try to answer three questions as we look at this verse this morning and the three questions basically involve this number one why do we sing number two what do we sing and number three how do we sing now the kids write those in and now they can go to sleep. Okay. Now there's some questions for the kids at the bottom. Some bonus questions, kids, at the bottom of your page. So don't forget the bonus. Right. So why do we sing? What do we sing? And how do we sing? 
That's those are the questions that we're going to try to ask of this text in order to learn this singing lesson from the Apostle Paul, really from the Holy Spirit. Right. Okay, so let's ask these questions and try to answer. First of all, why do we sing? I want to suggest to you that we sing. One of the reasons we sing, this isn't the only reason in all of Scripture that we sing, but this is one of the reasons that is stated in this passage, is we sing to enrich ourselves with the gospel. We sing to enrich ourselves with the gospel. You can go all throughout the Scriptures and come up with a full systematic answer to that question, but in this verse, this is one of the answers we sing to enrich ourselves with the gospel. Notice the the phrases that are used in the first part of this verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. What does Paul mean when he commands us? He doesn't just suggest this. He commands, let the word of Christ. What does that mean, word of Christ? Well, if you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 5 in this book, if you look at how the Lord or how Paul uses word, and word of God, or this is the only place where it's called word of Christ or word of truth. This is basically a synonym for the gospel. If you want to, you can turn back to chapter one, verse five in Colossians, where Paul says, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And throughout the book of Acts, you see that when Luke is saying that Paul or Peter went to preach the word. Oftentimes it'll follow it up with a explanation uh, of the gospel. They went to preach the word. They went to preach the gospel. So in this context, you know, when the book of Colossians was written, the scriptures weren't completed yet. We didn't have the complete canon. Paul isn't thinking in his writing to the Colossians, let the whole Bible dwell within you. We know that that's going to be true by application as the canon comes together. But primarily what Paul's talking about in this context is let the gospel, let the good news of Jesus Christ dwell in you. And so let's think about that for a second. Dwell in you. Let the gospel take up residence inside of you as individuals and probably more than that as you as a corporate body. He's writing corporately to the Colossians. Let the gospel Take up residence and not just take up residence like, you know, in the garage or out in the backyard. Um, You know, I don't know if you guys, any of you own a mother-in-law house. Have you guys heard of that concept of mother-in-law house? The idea is, is, you know, when your mother-in-law gets uh, old enough and you need to bring her to your place is you have a house out there, Right. Where she can kind of have her place. And then you can maintain your place. And so this isn't saying we bring the gospel like we bring our mother-in-law into a mother-in-law house. This is we bring our mother-in-law in, right? And we let her come and, and be rich in the house. The idea here of letting the gospel come in is really letting the gospel come in and be the master and call the shots. Imagine that you invited somebody to come live with you and they they walked in and they start saying, yeah, we're not going to eat that here. No, no, we're not going to watch that on TV. Those magazines, uh, they're out. Uh, no, at seven o'clock, we'll do this. I don't know about you, but I would be like, uh, who is this guy? Well, what are they here for? They're the guests, right? 
And it would be appropriate for us to feel that way if we had a guest come stay in our house. The gospel is not just a guest. The gospel is being brought in to be an enriching element. It's the gospel is the king, right? Christ is the, the, the gospel of Christ is the king that's being brought into us and into this corporate body to richly dwell, to rule in all wisdom, to bring all applications and, 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 and means to uh, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So why do we sing? Well, one main reason that we sing is so that we can be enriched by the gospel. Now, we can be enriched by the gospel in a lot of different ways, through teaching and through you know, the preaching of the word, through fellowship, through personal Bible reading and stuff. But one of the ways that we get enriched by the gospel is through singing. Okay, and so we're going to let's develop this a little more. Let's ask a second question. Um, and that is this. What do we sing? Okay, so why do we sing? We're supposed to be enriched by the gospel. What do we sing? Uh, well, I want to suggest to you as a, a summary of, of the idea here in this verse is that we sing songs to ourselves that teach and admonish. We sing songs to ourselves that teach and admonish. Really, this could be what do we sing and to whom. Uh, let's just stick with the idea of what. Uh, Paul says teaching and admonishing, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in Psalms, hymns. We'll get to that here in a second. So we're supposed to teach and admonish or exhort one another. Or I think maybe more properly, the idea is ourselves. We're speaking to us and to everybody else. So this is kind of an interesting concept, you know, that. As we consider what it is we are to sing, the content of our singing should be teaching and admonishment. I mean, there's other passages that talk about what we should sing about. But in this particular passage, Paul's contemplating the idea that the content of our teach of our singing should have teaching. Uh, that's the same word for doctrine uh, all throughout the scripture and admonishment. There should be warnings. There should be encouragements. There should be course correcting. Um, and so this kind of what this what this brings up is what we call the horizontal aspect of singing. Uh, this is as as Christian theologians and pastors over the years have developed a hymnology or a doctrine of singing. Uh, one of the aspects of our doctrine of singing is that we. Yes, we sing to the Lord vertically, and most of us understand that, but we also sing horizontally. And we get this from passages like Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.18, and 20, the Psalms. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Who am I speaking to? Myself. And join me, you know, let us rejoice and praise the Lord together. I'm speaking to you and you're speaking to me. Psalms that speak to the Gentiles. You're speaking to nations that don't even know Christ. And then it'll turn around and, and direct it to the Lord. Let me give you just kind of a little a quote that I thought was very helpful and interesting. This is off uh, the Gospel Coalition blog. Justin Taylor's one of the bloggers there. I'd really commend it to you. Uh, he just quoted Greg Gilbert in this blog. And here's what he had to say, Greg Gilbert. But here's the thing. When you sing in a congregation, you're not just singing for yourself. 
You're singing for every other member of the congregation for their edification and building up in Christ, too. In First Corinthians 14, 26, Paul tells us that when we come together, everything we do, including our singing, is done for each other. Singing hymns is not just an opportunity for each of us as individuals to worship God in our own way. It's an opportunity for the church as a whole to worship God together. He goes on. That means that even if you don't like a particular song, it's likely that someone else in the congregation resonates with it deeply. They feel about it the same way you feel about your favorites. And so you have a responsibility to love that person by singing that song with all your heart. You can muster all the heart you can muster. In other words, don't check out on songs that aren't your favorites. Sing them. Sing them aloud and heartily, not because you particularly like them, but because you may be helping to edify another brother or sister whose heart is engaged deeply with those songs. Worship isn't finally an individual experience. It's corporate. I should have underlined that, highlighted that. I hope you write that down in your notes. Worship is not an individual experience. It's corporate. And everything we do, everything, Paul tells us, including our singing, should be done for the building up of the saints. So as we gather together to sing, we are building one another up as we teach and admonish one another with our singing, both the content and the way we do it. And so let's let me just take a moment here uh, to um, kind of do a little side route. Uh, because these, this phrase is in the passage. So, okay, so we're teaching, admonishing one another. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Okay, what does that mean? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Uh, and there, you can read all kinds of articles, look up all kinds of uh, commentaries, whatever. What? How do we distinguish psalms, hymns, spiritual songs? Nobody knows. We have no idea. Um, the fact is, is the word, the Greek word behind psalms, behind hymns, and behind spiritual songs. Those words are all used in the Greek translation of the Psalms to speak of Psalms. So a Psalm could be called a Psalm. A Psalm could be called a hymn. A Psalm could be called a spiritual song. Right. So these are these can be synonyms. Um, Some people suggest some variation like Psalms may refer to just the Old Testament Psalter itself. Uh, And then hymns may refer to songs that are primarily praises directed to God or Jesus, or the Spirit. And spiritual songs may be just general songs, kind of a big category to cover all songs other than secular songs. Um, Or spiritual songs may be the type of singing that would occur when somebody stood up with the gift of prophecy in the early church and would sing a prophecy. Um, That could be the idea. Um, What we do know is that even in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 Uh, Paul says, if somebody has a psalm, somebody has a tongue. And so he uses the word psalm in in 1 Corinthians 14 to actually refer to something that's probably not the Psalter. So you see some of the confusion. Most people would say what Paul is saying, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He's just saying, whatever type of song that you sing in the church, it ought to be done with with the goal of teaching and admonishing so that the gospel would enrich you. That's the idea. Let's track this. Let the word of Christ, let the gospel dwell in us in a rich way in all wisdom. Okay, how's that going to happen? 
as we teach and admonish one another, teaching and admonish one another with what? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. All of your singing, the whole repertoire, right, should end up teaching and admonishing yourselves and one another so that the gospel richly indwells all people, all the people in your congregation. That's the idea. What do we sing? <clears throat> we sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, whatever songs you sing in your church with a teaching and an admonishing direction. So let's talk. Let's let's take a moment and divide those two concepts up. Songs that teach, songs that admonish. <clears throat> songs that teach, I already mentioned, would be songs that have doctrinal content. Songs that teach us something about our creator. Songs that teach us something about our savior. Songs that teach us something about our sin and who we are. Us being made in the image of God. The fact that we fall short and that we are actually heading towards a place of judgment, a place called hell. But Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, taking on the wrath of God upon himself. Him being perfect, who knew no sin, died on the cross in our place as our substitute so that we no longer have to endure the wrath of God upon ourselves. But now we are actually enveloped in the righteousness of Christ and we get dressed in his righteousness, the solid rock, right? Him. I, I'm on solid ground. I stand, right? Um, we're dressed in his righteousness and now we can relate to our Abba Father because we have a high priest who is at the right hand of the Father always interceding for us. And Jesus Christ is coming back and he is going to and we will bow before him and we will worship him and he will take us to be with him forever. That's what we sing about. We sing about the gospel. We sing about doctrine. We sing about who God is. <clears throat> and so it kind of begs the question, why, does, why doesn't God, why is the Holy Spirit not content just to have us preaching the gospel or preaching doctrine? Why do we even do this thing called singing? Why is it not sufficient for Pastor Milton or whoever's up here on a given Sunday just to get up and preach the gospel every week? Why do we take time out to sing the gospel, to sing doctrine? Well, the first reason is, is because the Holy Spirit says so, right? And the Holy Spirit says so because he wants us filled and enriched with Christ. The Spirit wants to exalt Christ. And as we we're singing the things that we're hearing preached from the pulpit, there's something in the way that God has made us where it sticks in our brains, right? It starts to stick in our minds. We're hearing it preached and then we hear it sung and these lyrics. How many times have I just, you know, gone to bed at night and I wake up in the morning and for some odd reason I've been listening to a song and all of a sudden I'm like, how from the foundation. It's just like in my mind, I wake up and there, there it is. You know, these things that will just enter into our minds. <clears throat> and so it's very important for us to be singing the gospel. It enriches us. It causes us. It brings it to memory. The Holy Spirit uses it. It's something that he has ordained. Could we call it a means of grace? He's, he's told us to preach. He's told us to take communion. He's told us to fellowship. He's told us to sing, right? To sing doctrine. You know, in the early church, um, there were those that would put heresies to nice little ditties, little commercial songs. Arius would, was really well known for this. He would take a little ditty about Christ not being God and only a man and put it to a nice, memorable tune. Before you know it, everybody's singing, Jesus isn't God, Jesus isn't God. He's just a man, whatever his, you know, whatever they said in Latin back then. 
<clears throat> and, um, and so this is what people are beginning to learn. Athanasius and all the other guys are out here preaching, preaching, preaching. They said, you know what? We're going to make our own ditties. And so they start making their ditties and their songs and hymns that are exalting uh, the, the eminency of Christ and the deity of Christ. Um, and so you have that kind of stuff going on. Let me just uh, give you one. This is one of the most ancient hymns that we have. It's in our Bible, 1 Timothy 3.16. It's about every commentator and theologian I've read on this passage would tell you this is an early church hymn that Paul's quoting. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. This is that horizontal aspect of worship. This is the teaching aspect of worship. Why is the congregation singing this? Is this being sung directly to God? No, it's being sung to one another. Just imagine yourself in an early church congregation and you're singing these words. You're proclaiming the fact that Christ came in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, ascended up into glory. I think of a great hymn like In Christ Alone, one of my favorite hymns. And this is one of those hymns that has that horizontal aspect to it. It's, it's something that we're singing about God, and, and it has a teaching element to it. Uh, the, Getty, the Gettys wrote this, Keith Getty says, In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. That's a great phrase right there. Fullness of God, the deity of Christ in helpless babe, the incarnation. The gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Propitiation. For every sin on him was laid. Substitution. Here in the death of Christ I live. I am one with Christ. Right? If I'm brought into my unification with Christ. These are the type of, of words that we sing in a church that distinguish our worship from worship that would be sung by a Buddhist or a Jehovah Witness or some cult or some other group. Um, you know, one of one of the things that I know that a, a number of songwriters and uh, worship artists were very concerned about, um, particularly, I would say, about 15, 20 years ago, is the fact that more and more it was starting to look like Christian music was being owned by almost exclusively secular parent companies. And, and so there was a time when Christian artists were like, this is not a good trend. Because the stuff that's being written is stuff that needs to sell. And if you write stuff that just needs to sell, you're going to write to the lowest common denominator. Because you have to sell your records, right? And so you have to minimalize. You have to, what, what is the stuff that everybody out there can agree on? Every single denomination and group and anybody that quasi calls himself a Christian, what can they all agree on? And that's the stuff that we're going to start to write. And there was a period in church hymnody, I would say, I mean, there's exceptions to this, but my opinion and my studies, the 70s and 80s were not a good time for Christian music. Um, you can find exceptions, but there's a lot of Christian music that could have been sung to Jehovah Witness in Jehovah Witness churches, Mormon churches, or Buddhist temples, for that matter. And you wouldn't have really known who in the world you were singing to. Some people have cynically called it "Jesus is my boyfriend" music. Who, 
who's being sung to here? We don't really know because there's no distinguishing teaching elements to what we're singing. And so the congregation goes out feeling moved by the music and feeling like they enjoyed the worship. But when you begin to question what really happened, you don't really know. And I'm intimately acquainted with this um, from one respect because I I went through all of that. Um, You know, I I got saved uh, as a 14-year-old. Started going to a great church. I love this church. And uh, went out and bought a... I, I loved singing to the Lord at my church. I went out and bought a guitar at a garage sale and got a book, started learning. All I wanted to do was just sing praises to the Lord in my room. And I know the Lord, you know, just, you know, the way the Lord is, how gracious He is, regardless of how immature I was or just maybe how you know, young I was, and even maybe how shallow some of the things I was singing, the Lord just receiving my worship. But, you know, we all, we all need to grow up. And I just remember in the culture that I was raised in, I thought, and it's not like anybody said this to me directly, but my theology of worship was, is there are songs that are spirit-filled worship, and then there's other stuff that's just not as spirit-filled. And to me, at our church, we had like, we sang traditional hymns one time a month and that was the unspirit filled Sunday. Right. And you could feel it throughout the congregation. We'd all show up on those other three Sundays and raise my hands. And boy, we're praying, you know, just praising the Lord as a charismatic church. You know, I'm charismatic. And we're just, hey, you know, and then, um, and then that Sunday would come, you know, where it was just nothing but traditional hymns. I got to admit, there's some times where I overslept. And and didn't get there till after the songs were done or, you know, I get there, you know, I get there during the singing. I just be like. This isn't spiritual worship, man. I'm in Orange County. Dude, this is not spiritual worship. We need spiritual worship, man. And, um, you know, that was my attitude. Then the Lord moved me out to the Inland Empire and um, I start going to a church over here. It wasn't Cornerstone, but it was another church. And uh, they they did things a little bit differently. Uh, they sang a lot of old hymns. And, um, and even when they sang stuff that I grew up singing and leading back in Orange County, it sounded corny, you know. They tried to do it, but it just wasn't working. You know, they're up there at the piano and organ and just trying to lead this song that I grew up, you know, lead in. And I'm just like, oh, this is so corny. And uh, I can just remember, you know, a pastor talking to me one day. I'd only been to the church for a little while. And he says, so, hey, how are you enjoying the church? And I'm just like, wow, the teaching's great. Teaching is great. But, uh, boy, your guys' worship, you guys, you guys got a long way to go. He's like, oh, what do you mean? It's just not spirit-filled. Well, explain what do you mean? And and in my theology, what I said to him was, you know, we do a lot of singing about God here, but we don't do enough singing to God. You guys are always singing these songs that are kind of like, and I don't know that they even knew enough to say in the third person. You know, it's like you're singing who God is, you're singing about his attributes and immortal, invisible and all that stuff. But what about just praising Jesus, just singing directly to him? We're not doing a whole lot of that. And he didn't get offended. And he was just like, well, you know, let's let's take a look at the Bible. And so he showed me passages like Colossians and Ephesians 5. And he took me to the Psalms, 
where David is saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. And he's speaking to unbelievers and he's speaking to other people. And then at other times he's crying out to the Lord. There's some psalms that are totally directed to the Lord. And other psalms where there isn't anything in the first person in the entire psalm. It's all in the third person. And suddenly it began to dawn on me that my theology of worship um, was uninformed by the scriptures. That there's a vertical aspect of worship, which is right there in the Psalms. But there's a horizontal aspect of worship that's right here in Colossians 3 and in the Psalms and in a lot of places in Scripture. And so I began to kind of lower my critical evaluation of their singing time and then began to enter in and just sing some of these old hymns that I really wasn't used to. And I began to be amazed at at just the quality, how the quality of my worship changed. The music didn't get any better. The piano player didn't get any better. Um, but I got better as I began to say, these are some awesome hymns, awesome songs. And then I went through a whole period where I began to be critical and judge everybody in my past and to throw the baby out with the bathwater and forget the lesson that the pastor was trying to teach me to find balance of horizontal and vertical. And, and that's when, about the time that me and a bunch of people came over to Cornerstone in 1993. And now we, we had come from this really, really, really traditional old school hymn singing church, came to Cornerstone and just criticized everything. Oh, yeah, just, oh boy. Now we're like, where's the reverence for God? Where's the great old hymns of the faith? What in the world are we doing? In my heart there rings a melody, there rings a melody, there's in harmony. Like what? Are we at a circus or what is going on here? So I bring all this judgmentalism over to Cornerstone and they're at their own place in development and worship and stuff and and, and then the Lord kind of does some other teaching and molding of me and a bunch of us that came over from this other church. All that to say is there's this, there's this horizontal teaching aspect that should be part of our theology of worship. That we are singing truth to one another. So, and then there's also the admonition aspect. Okay, so we're, we teach doctrine but there also ought to be a correcting that's going on as we sing. Are we singing songs that offer corrective thoughts? All of us, you know, every single day, you know, the Bible, the book of Hebrews says, while it is today, we need to believe, right? It, it only takes one day and we're off, right? And so you come in on any given Sunday and you're off and I'm off and we need correction. And so we sing a hymn like we did this morning, Be Thou My Vision. Okay, what's going on with this? This is an 8th century hymn, Irish hymn, that gets uh, reversified and, and put into English and uh, in the 1900s. And so what's the hymn writer doing here? Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. I, my vision needs correcting. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Why are we singing that? Why am I singing this? Because... There are things that are important to me that need to be set aside. Thou, my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. And so I'm, as I'm singing this hymn to the Lord and I'm singing it to you, we're like, that's right. 
Our vision needs to be corrected. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. Now, when the hymn writer wrote that, was he thinking that I will, this is my disposition all the time? Or is he thinking, I'm going to write this down so that we can be reminded that we need to be corrected into this position all the time? I think it's the latter. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure, thou art. We're singing things that we want to be true of us now, right? We know, I know that Christ is not always my treasure. And so I come and I begin to sing these songs and you sing these songs. We're singing them to each other and the Holy Spirit gets all wrapped up in it. And then we're course correcting. And it's the Holy Spirit's design that we would come and sing these things to each other and course correct. And by implication, if the Holy Spirit's commanding us to do this, if we don't do this, it it seems to imply, doesn't it, that we're going to get off if we're not singing, teaching, and admonishing words to one another. Another hymn um, that I love that doesn't get sung in churches much anymore, I, I love Isaac Watts. I love, there's a lot of songs in our hymn books and in church hymnody that we don't always feel very comfortable singing these days. We live in a time period, actually, I would say, I, I would say we're growing, um, see, I got five minutes. Um, we're growing, I would say in the last like 15 years or so, we're going through a period that I think future historians are going to call the reawakening of hymns. It's like there's the new hymns movement. Everybody's going back and getting old hymns and rewriting them and putting them into new music. They're writing brand new hymns that have never been written before. But there's this reawakening that's going on now that's reminiscent of other times in church history, like the time of the Great Awakening, like the time of Isaac Watts, um, like the time right at the Reformation, where people had in the last 15, 20 years have said, we're not satisfied with singing Jesus is my boyfriend songs. We want to have a connection to the history of the church. And so they're going back and resurrecting these hymns. And this hymn has been resurrected by a band called Sojourn. And it's, it's an admonition hymn. It's, it goes this way, just a couple stanzas of it. Mistaken souls that dream of heaven and make their empty boast of inward joys and sins forgiven while they are slaves to lust. Vain are the fancies, airy flights, if faith be cold and dead. None but a living power unites to Christ, the living head. What's the advantage of singing a hymn like that? Well, one, those of us that are truly born again, but maybe struggling or whatever, we're like, that's right, I need to put away my lust. I want to be, Lord, Spirit, fill me up. I want to be united with you. Give me that assurance of salvation. Maybe there's people within our congregations that are deceiving themselves. They're like, I'm good. I'm born again. I'm good. I'm ready to go. And yet they're just, they're love. They're just totally loving everything of the world and everything of lust. Lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's what they truly love. But they come in every Sunday and deceive themselves into thinking, I'm going to heaven, I'm good. And then you sing a hymn like this and the Holy Spirit reawakens them, right? There's hymns like this that have that admonition effect, can have that admission, admonition. And so there's a horizontal aspect to our worship. Let's get to the last question, which will kind of bring in more of that vertical aspect. And that is this, how do we sing? We've talked about why do we sing, what do we sing, how do we sing? And I want to suggest to you that from the final couple phrases in this verse, 
that we sing to the Lord with the knowledge of undeserved favor in the front of our minds. We sing to the Lord with the knowledge of undeserved favor in the front of our minds. There's a lot of ways to slice these phrases, and you can see some of the difficulty translators have by comparing the translations, but what I want to suggest to you is, is I think the idea here is... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with the grace in your hearts, with the undeserved favor of God in your hearts, which in the Hebrew mindset, it means in your mind, in the front of your mind. You and I are recipients of undeserved favor through Christ. We don't deserve heaven, but we get it. We don't deserve goodness, but we get it. We don't deserve God's kindness, but we get it because Jesus, the perfect one, died and took the wrath of God in our place. And so we enter in and as we begin to worship and as we begin to contemplate our brothers and sisters around us, and as we begin to contemplate whether we like or don't like the particular songs that are chosen that morning, undeserved favor is front and foremost in our minds. And we sing in that attitude to the Lord. We're singing these songs that are teaching and admonishing, and we're singing them to the Lord with undeserved favor front and foremost in our mind. And it just seems to me that that has to have an effect on our expressiveness, I would think, doesn't it? If I understand, if I'm really conscious of the fact that I am a saved sinner and I get to be here in the presence of Almighty God with his people and sing. That that should have an impact. The grace should turn itself into gratitude and thankfulness, which a lot of your translations say. The result of this grace is gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord. And I have to think that as the Holy Spirit is growing us as a body, that that gratefulness is going to be expressed in ways that are similar to the way Christ feels about us, right? Consider Zephaniah 3.17. This is the Lord. He's talking about Israel. But by extension, this is all of the people of God. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. The idea is he will shout with joy over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So here's God Almighty contemplating us, and he's expressive. He's rejoicing. At times he's quiet and he's, he's, he's tender and he's loving, but he's, he's excited about saving you. And he wants you to be excited about him saving you. Think about the fact that Jesus Christ himself after they took the Passover, that first communion for us, right? They took the Passover, they're in the upper room, and then it says, and they sang a hymn. Literally, they did hymn singing. A lot of people would suggest that after the Passover, Jews would sing the Hillel, Psalm 115 to 118. And so Christ probably sings Psalm 115 to 118 right after the Passover. And how do you think Christ led in worship in the upper room? How do you think he went about that? He said, all right... Go ahead and turn to Psalm 115. You guys there? Okay, um, Psalm 115. Well, 
I don't really like that one. Let's go to 118. No, 117 is real short. Let's do that one. Okay, praise the Lord. All you Gentiles. Lord of all you peoples. For his mercy and kindness is great towards us. It's truth that the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Amen. Okay, let's, uh, let's go, you guys. I just can't imagine Jesus being dispassionate in his leadership in worship. Right? Now, the disciples, you could see them all over the map, right? Depending on where they're at at the particular time. And, and this isn't to say that we don't struggle, right? We're, we're all struggling. Jesus is the perfect worshiper. And praise the Lord that we're in him. And so his worship is sufficient to present before God, right? But we need to learn from, I think we need to learn from the example of God in the Old Testament, Zephaniah, and look at Christ, consider what, how passionate would Christ be, and how passionate was he about his Father. And that should impact our singing. And just to think about the horizontal aspect of our singing, your singing has an impact on me, and my singing has an impact on you. You know, I'm forgetting, when does this service end? I got the old time in my head somehow. What is it? Oh, okay, there we go. Okay, so cool, yeah. I got more time than I thought. I just heard a news story this morning about 40-year-olds are actually getting, losing their mind. Or, you know, it's not just people 50 or 60, it's like in your 40s is when it starts. Whatever that means. Um, okay, so, so when we're singing in here, I mean, this passage isn't, I don't want you guys to get the idea, this passage isn't just about corporate worship, it's about... Okay, what are you doing in your quiet times? What are you doing in your family worship? What are you doing in your care groups? What are you doing in your Bible study? But also, yes, what are we doing here when we gather together on Sunday mornings? Are you cognizant of the people around you? Are you just, is your attitude that it's, I'm having this private worship moment. Please do not disturb. And, you know, I mean, there's churches that actually that's their attitude and they don't want any kids in the service they don't want any ushers coming down. Whoa, 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 you're disturbing my worship, man. Come on. You know, it's, it's this private little thing. No, no, it, it's a corporate thing. We're teaching and singing to one another. I used to love, man, our old chairman of the board, Ron Needham, he'd sit right down here. We'd be singing Wonderful Grace of Jesus, and Ron would just be turning around, just looking at everybody, just Wonderful Grace of Jesus. And the people right behind him would just be kind of like, What's going on? Yeah. But he just wanted to look out and just see everybody smiling and singing. He was just excited. And I personally, I think it's a great thing for us to uh, you know, look around and see what's going on. Let me just give you a little clue. Um, when I'm up here preaching or when I'm up here leading worship, I can see you. <laughs> There's this little psychological thing where an audience thinks that the speaker or the people can't see him. That's false. And I have my go-to people. When I'm up here and I start getting discouraged, I know certain people, I'm going to Jonathan Jones, baby. I'm going over here, I'm going here, I'm Dave Sealy, i got to look at Dave. Um, you know, if I start getting discouraged, I'm going to look around and find those people. And I'm not going to call anybody out, but there are some people who are not my go-to people. If I'm starting to feel a little down, I avert eye contact. I'm looking somewhere else. And I know that we struggle too. Here, up, you know, we talk about it all the time as worship leaders, like how can we be better in our our leadership and our expressiveness. You know, a lot of times we'll be out here on a Wednesday night, and John will be up there at the board. And he's like, "You guys look like you're dead and six feet under." 
you know, and so we're taking video. How can we get help us grow? Let this be a Holy Spirit filled thing. We don't want to manufacture it. Help us, Lord, just to lead. But, you know, it goes both ways. We want to just we want to encourage one another. And so I would just challenge you in that challenge you. It's not just about you and Jesus. It's about all of us in Jesus. Uh, let me just say one other kind of little side little application as far as corporate worship goes here is I can tell which one of you guys don't like certain songs or certain style of songs, right? We'll be, we'll be singing like a traditional, maybe an older hymn, even if we're doing it in a contemporary way or maybe we're doing it in a more traditional way. And I'll look, I'll look out there and I just know who ain't going to be singing, you know? Now, I know there's different reasons why somebody might not be singing. Maybe they've got a disability. Maybe somebody's like, I know sometimes I get to the point where if I start singing, I'm going to, I'm going to cry. And so I like have to hold back, you know, or whatever. But there's other times where I can you can just see it. It's like, okay, we start singing at him and here goes that person. And then all of a sudden we start singing something more contemporary and it's upbeat and it's booming. And there goes that. And, And then people vote with their voices. You ever notice that? Like we'll start singing, like say somebody doesn't really like a, an upbeat song or something like that, but then we'll start singing How Firm a Foundation. How firm a foundation, ye say, I'm voting with my voice. We should sing more songs like this, not those contemporary worldly songs, you know, or whatever. <clears throat> you know, it's just like, dude, let's, uh, let's enter in, man. Let's encourage one another, you know. It's not, I got a I, newsflash. This, I don't want this to sound cruel. Newsflash, it ain't all about you. You know, it's, it ain't all about me. It's all about Jesus, and it's about us trying to enter into each other's pleasure, right? You know what? So-and-so loves this song. There's songs that we used to do, and I'm kind of rambling here, but, you know, Vernon, when he, he played his organ over here for years and years and years. And there's songs that Vernon absolutely loved. They'd, it, it, he would cry. And the only reason I led those songs is because Vernon and some of the old saints in here loved them. I hated them. There's, I won't tell you because then you'll like have that marked every time I do it. But there's certain songs I just could not stand, but it was just a preference thing. It wasn't because there was anything bad about the doctrine. You know, I didn't like the style of the song or I didn't like the way we did it, you know. But I'd be like, you know what? These, these people love this song. And so I'm going to lead this song. And anytime I started to feel kind of like this is corny, I just look over at Vernon and see him bawling. Sorry. And then just be like, you know what? It's, it's so not about preferences. It's so not about musical styles. It's so about us just enjoying each other and enjoying Christ as we're teaching and admonishing one another. That's what it's all about, you know. And we all, you know, we all need to grow. You know, we don't, we don't want to stay status quo. We all want to grow, right? We want to get better in our musicality and all these other things. But what Paul's concerned about here is the spiritual part. You know, we could be the most musical church. We could have the best vocalists. We could have the best congregation, choirs. Sounds awesome. Everything's pro. But if we're not singing with undeserved favor in the front of our minds to the Lord and to each other, clanging cymbals. Right? Clanging cymbals. Let me just end with this. Well, with a couple quick quotes here. Bob Coughlin, one of my theological worship heroes. Worshiping God 
in song isn't simply a nice idea or only for musically gifted people. The question is not, has God given me a voice, but has God given me a song? If you trust in the finished work of Christ, the answer is clear. Yes. Um, and I just want, I want to challenge all the dads in here to pray for your kids that the Spirit will overwhelm them with a sense of undeserved favor so that they'll sing to the Lord. Because um, I, I know, you know, you can't judge anybody on any given particular day. All of us have bad days and stuff. But <clears throat> when I look out and I see what looks to me kind of like cynicism or, or I ain't going to sing, or it feels like sometimes maybe they're just people that are welled up with pride and so they're not going to let their voices go for Christ. I just wonder how much have they tasted of undeserved favor? And I can't answer that. But I think a lot of our dads in the church can. They know their kids. And, and, and the, the way of doing that, you know, we all got to be careful. You know, I, I, I can't go up to my kids, you guys, we're going to sing and have joy today or you're going to get it. You know, not going to work. But, I, you know, if I just pour out my heart to the Lord, I'm praying for my kids, and I'm trying to set the pace at home best I can. I'm singing in front of my kids. You know, you may not think you have the greatest voice or whatever, but, you know, it doesn't matter. I'll just, I'll just call out Carlos Slimciaco, man. This dude, he loves Christ. And I just remember him being in his bedroom as a brand new Christian. This guy's like two weeks old, the Lord. He's in his room on his knees. Come the fount of every blessing. And just like crying out to Christ, man. And I'm like in the other room just crying because this young Christian's in there just, just lifting his heart up to the Lord. And he doesn't care if his unbelieving family hears him or whatever. He's just like crying out to the Lord. And, and you can have an impact on your kids regardless of your musicality just by letting your heart go in front of your children. We sing uh, at our at our house uh, at the end of family devotions. We sing uh, most of the time. Jesus paid it all. We'll mix it up once in a while. But Samuel can kind of tell when I'm getting at the end of Bible reading, or I don't know what it is if it's the tone of my voice or something. But I start doing that thing, and then he'll go, "Jesus, okay, you're done, Dad. Jesus paid it all." You know, so we'll, you know, we'll sing that together, and, and uh, my little three-year-old knows all the words, you know. He's mumbling them, but he knows them, you know, and so, and he enjoys that, and, and we can sing to one another. You guys think about, I'm sure you guys sing to each other in your home. Do you ever sing to a little baby, right, or sing to a girlfriend or wife or whatever, and, you know, we can sing to the Lord, sing to each other. I guess one last, since I'm rambling here, one last little story, uh, I, another thing that we sing at home is I'll sing a... Uh, don't tell anybody this. Um, I'll sing this song to Samuel before we put him to bed. It's by Tom Petty. Don't tell anybody. Um, it's called Good Night Baby. It's like, Good night, baby. Sleep tight, my love. And then a lot of times, if he's ready to go to bed and he's real tired, you know, he'll get into it and he'll sing it. And, you know, he's cool with it. But if he doesn't want to go to bed, I'll say, Good. And he's just bawling, man. He just doesn't want it. But, you know, these are things, you know, that. You don't have to be a great singer or whatever, but just little things like that, just to, to try to lead your, your kids uh, at home and seeing that, hey, this is a special thing. The Holy Spirit commands us to do this, and so it must be for our good. And I don't think it's too, 
too much of a stretch to say this is a means of grace that the Lord has given us to sing songs that teach and admonish one another. When you're thinking about songs to teach for your family worship, think about songs that teach and admonish. Get some good hymns, modern songs, old songs, all kinds of songs. Examine the content. If you're going to be leading care group this afternoon, next week, think about the songs you're leading. You're leading worship at the youth group. Don't just go and listen to what's on Christian radio and just say, well, this is the most popular song, so I'm going to sing that. Some of the most popular songs are junk, right? Uh, And I'm not just you know saying that to be mean, but there's some really, really popular songs that are great, and some of them are just like they could be sung by a Buddhist, okay? Get songs that are really, you know, can admonish and teach. Care group, Bible study here at Cornerstone. Final quote, and then we will pray. Wesley's rules for singing that he gave his congregation. This is rule four. Sing vigorously and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of it being heard than when you sung the songs of Satan. You know, I mean, I can remember my BC days. You know, I'm just kind of doing it, you know, Orange County, whatever, and just getting into it. Um, And then, uh, you know, fortunately, you know, I think kind of the worship atmosphere at the church I went to is, I think, somewhat was pretty expressive. And so I learned from that. But uh, but I'll tell you what, you know, when we had those hymn Sundays, I'd be out there just like I was dead, just like this isn't spirit filled, man. It's not spirit filled. Just just dead. But then, like, you know, two hours later, I'm in the car, sweet home, Alabama, you know, whatever, just singing it out. It's like, why can't I sing? Why can't I enter in with these songs that, you know, our our leadership at that church was deciding to sing one Sunday a month? Um, I'm all excited about uh, Leonard Skinner. So anyway, so. That's the long and the short. Let's let the Holy Spirit apply these things to our hearts. You guys will talk about in care group. There's a lot of questions on there that we didn't discuss in the sermon, so you can flesh it out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness to us and allowing us to be in your presence and to sing to you today and to learn about singing. We pray, Lord, that you would make us better singers. Not, Lord, um, that we're pushing with our diaphragm better or opening up our throat or singing more in tune. Uh, If that's what you choose to do, that's great. What we pray, Lord, is that you would give us a passion to sing the way your spirit is directed. And that is singing uh, thoughtfully songs, these songs that are teaching and admonishing. And that we would sing with a consciousness, a conscientiousness of our brothers and sisters all around us. Lord, that those of us that are leaders in this church, that we would lead those around us and under us in our worship. At the same time, help us not to be judgmental of one another. Um, help us to look at our own hearts and apply these things to ourselves, not to take these truths and apply them in a wrong way by judging our brothers and sisters around us that sit around us on any given Sunday. We ask that you would do your work uh, through us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.